0: special guest, Roger Webb. Well, since the illustrious speaker didn't show up, <laughs> I decided to, to come up here and fill the pulpit. Uh, let's turn, if you will, we'll start in First uh, John chapter 3. We're going to be hop-skipping around this morning, but before we start, let's pray. Our gracious Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one and only way that we as sinful human beings can even begin to think that we can approach your throne of grace, and yet we can. We would ask that as we consider this your word, as we consider the many different thoughts and ideas uh, on this topic, that, that you might coalesce these things in our minds so that we can share them with others when, when opportunity presents. Help us to indeed have uh, an answer, to give an answer to everyone that asks us of the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear. Teach us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was for some time wondering exactly what I should bring as far as a, uh, um, a message, and the Lord has been working in my, my thoughts about uh, preparing a, a, a message that had been burdening my heart uh, on a particular thought, but I didn't bring that one. Uh, Through circumstances, I chose not to bring that. But uh, I also thought of a recent Sunday school lesson that uh, um, I gave to the kids. In the last few months, I've been in teaching the the young people and and having that blessing. Um, And we talked about if God is good... Why is there so much evil in the world? And, I mean, all we need to do is look at the, the newspaper. This morning's newspaper, what was on the front page? Two young women from Peru came, uh, married two young men from the United States, and one of them got killed, and they're extraditing the, the young, young man to Peru on murder charges. We don't have to go back very far in recent history to think of the hurricane in the Gulf Coast states, or the tsunami in Indonesia, or the chaos over the last eight years in Baghdad. What's all these tragedies, whether it's on a global scale or on a personal scale, here we have Violet who, who faced her own personal trage- tragedy and she's working through that. Why do things like this happen? Why would God allow such a thing to happen? This question comes up a lot. Now sometimes this idea is posed by people who who are suffering through the issues. Sometimes they head the wrong direction as well. Uh, Recently, uh, well, within the past number of years, Ted Turner was interviewed about, uh, he was commenting on the loss of his sister to a devastating brain disease. And he said, I was taught that God was love and that God was powerful. Yet I didn't understand how someone so innocent could be made to suffer so. And one of his biographers noted concerning Charles Darwin that one issue in Charles Darwin's life was the loss of his beloved daughter Annie to a stomach disease, and she suffered immensely from the pain. And this biographer wrote, any vestige of belief in God left Charles Darwin at that time, which is a shame. People look at that question and sometimes head the wrong direction. Sometimes this is a merely philosophical argument that that somebody would have to deny the existence of the God of the Bible. The message, the the thought goes something like this. God is either a monster who is all-powerful and could stop the evil but chooses not to, thus allowing people to suffer, or... God is impotent and can't stop the evil. Well, that's, that line of argumentation is what is generally called reductionism. It is uh, presenting two possibilities and eliminating all other possibilities, and you, you're forced to choose between the two but there are other answers to the question. But where does this type of question come from? And this is what we want to discuss this morning. Where does this type of question come from? And I want to take a few moments to discuss and answer it from a biblical perspective. Where does it come from, and how should we respond as as Christians? And let me just say a few things before I continue. Uh, anyone that is truly suffering uh, will really not be, be helped too much by the arguments or answers, but by true loving compassion. Somebody that is really going through suffering, they, they need physical, material help. They need compassion, they need patient understanding, they need effectual, fervent prayer for somebody that is really going through the agonies because most of what I'm going to say really is going to be directed towards those who are merely posing this this question argumentatively but nothing that I say should be construed to, to minimize or belittle the suffering that another person is going through. And I sort of, as I was thinking through this, I thought of uh, what the Lord Jesus said in, in Mark fourteen seven, when he was being anointed. He said, For the poor ye have always... And whatsoever you will, you may do them good. What is the Lord Jesus saying at that point? These aren't just empty words, but it's really a mandate from the God of heaven that we should meet the physical needs of whomever we can, whenever we can meet it. Sometimes we as fundamentalists, and I include myself in that term, err by swinging too far the opposite way when we see other churches having the social gospel, preaching the social gospel. We swing way too far the other way and say, oh no, all you do is preach the gospel. No, that's not all you do, just preach the gospel. You meet material needs when you have, if you... I asked you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. Look at 1 John 3, verses 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need... But has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. If we have material needs, if we have material goods, and we see somebody who has a material need, that's a divine appointment. God gave us those material blessings. Not so that we can hoard them to ourselves. He gave them to us, and then showed us the person who needs them. And you might say he stands back and says, "Okay, now what are you going to do?" But the first place, the first place that this question comes from, the first, you might say, springing of this question comes from a misunderstanding of God's nature. God is both good and all-powerful and just. Isaiah 46, 9-11 states that God is all-powerful. Whatever He says, He will bring it to pass. But 1 John 4, 8, which is where we wanted to go, whoever does not love does not know God because what? God is love. The very essence of his nature is loving. But there's another aspect to the nature of God that is not mentioned in that that argumentation. Either God is all-powerful, and he's a monster, or he's he's, uh, impotent and can't help the... The, the situation well he is all-powerful he is love and he is just now don't distort the true understanding of the nature of God he is love but he is also just if you have one without the other you have the wrong understanding of God We can have a view of a God, of this frowning, angry judge waiting to destroy anybody who would dare step out of line. A God of judgment with no understanding of love. But in our society, that's rarely the case. More typically, we have a view of a God of love who's merely a spineless mass of quivering emotion who wouldn't dare judge sin or do anything that might avert our headlong pursuit of whatever we think will make us happy. And God wouldn't stop that. God wants you happy. Well, That is a concern of God, believe it or not. That is a concern of God. But God is much more concerned with you being coming holy than He is with you being happy. And if He has to distress us a little bit to make us holy, that's what He will do. How many of us have already arrived and we don't need any distressing? Yeah. It's another way to look at it. We would not think that a government that willfully and knowingly ignores the blatant violation of its laws to be a very good government, would we? Can you imagine going before a judge and the judge says, well, yeah, I know that uh, you were speeding and you were driving drunk, and you hit that pedestrian and killed them, but that's okay. I'll just let it slide. Is that a good judge? Of course not. So it is with God's moral government of his universe. He sets a standard. He makes the laws, and he enforces them. If you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Starting at verse 6, Paul gives us a general statement about the Lord's justice. Let's start at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart... You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in giving or in doing good seek glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. First to the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Now he's not telling a path of salvation here but he's giving a general overview of the justice of God. God holds people accountable. One of the most primary lessons that we have to teach our children as they're growing up is every action that they accomplish has consequences. Some of them are not very pleasant. And some of them are very pleasant. We don't, however, generally like to think about uh, the consequences of disobeying God because normally because we're the guilty offenders. Moreover, God's love and his justice are always in perfect harmony. Again, Romans 3, 26. We could turn over to there. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him that believeth on Jesus. God is both just and has worked the way of salvation so that his justice can remain unimpeachable and still look at us and impute to us the righteousness of Christ and declare us one with him. He can actually state that he is not ashamed to call us his children. What an awesome thought. But when Adam sinned, God in his justice allowed him and us to suffer the consequences of that rebellion. And we see it all around us. The wars, the fights that have plagued mankind. All the natural evil of the the world not fully upheld by God. That's God's justice, and that leads us actually into the next breeding ground for this question. Not only is God just, and it comes from a misunderstanding of the the nature of God, but this question comes from a misunderstanding of whose responsibility all this is anyway. The individual that states, well, why did God allow this to happen? If you stop to think about that statement, who's the one that they're blaming for the evil? God. It's all God's fault. But that's not so. God made a perfect world. It was very good. He states it was very good. And that means every single minute detail that God had intended to bring out, he it was perfect exactly the way he wanted it. There was no death, there was no disease, there was no suffering. All the animals were in perfect harmony. Humans were in perfect harmony with all the animals. This, by the way, is one reason why you can't believe the Bible and believe in millions of years of earth history. Millions of years requires death. And there was no death before the fall. For by one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And therefore death passed upon all men for that all sinned. God made Adam in his image. Part of that image was the ability to make moral choices. Every single one of us have the ability to make moral choices. Adam willfully, knowingly, chose to disobey the direct command of God. He, in effect, said, God, I know what you told me to do. But I choose my own path. I don't want your word. I don't want your way. Not only was this high treason against God, but it results in the fall. It results in the first sin, and it results in God cursing the ground. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, Adam. What does that mean? What all happened when God cursed the ground? It's an interesting question. We don't really know everything. What what did God do to change or to affect His creation so that it isn't working the way it was working then? The way I like to, to think about it, and I don't know if this is perfectly accurate or not, but I'll just throw this out to you. It says... That the Lord upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything that God created, he continuously, consciously supports. Moment by moment by moment. You and I could not exist. This universe could not exist apart from the upholding of almighty God. God withdrew, with the curse, God withdrew some of that upholding power. Say, how do you know that? Well, if you want to, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4. Interesting little phrase, interesting little statement. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4. He's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness as they wandered for 40 years. He says, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell. How do you like to wear the same set of clothes for 40 years? Yeah, they don't, they don't rip, they don't tear. How about turning to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 5. So much for the fashion industry, right? Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. What was happening there? God chose during that period of time to fully uphold that aspect of his creation. How about this one? Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah. Anybody know who they are in the Bible? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Very good. Don't use the, the Babylonian names that praise the, the false gods, use the, the biblical names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Anyway, what happened to them? <laughs> well, actually, they got, they got tied up, didn't they? And they got thrown, the, with Babylonian ropes, and they got thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. The Babylonian ropes got burned off, but not them and not their clothes. Why? God intervened with the natural course of events that would normally happen. God would have normally allowed everything within that furnace to be consumed, right? That is God's normal means of working. When we light a fire, what happens? The fuel, whatever fire that is, gets consumed and not Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There wasn't even any smell of smoke on their person. Their hair wasn't singed. Everybody loves the smell of burning hair, right? God, because we chose To disobey God, he cursed the ground, took away some of that upholding power, and as a result, we have a broken world. We have a world with remnants of beauty, with with tremendous complexity that we can't even begin to understand. Inside each and every one of our cells is a complex working of things that are far more complex than everything that's going on in New York City right now. The timing, the, the, the effects of, of the inner workings of these micro-machines. And I could go on and on and with follow that rabbit, rabbit trail for a long time, but I'm not going to. and yet with all that things break things wear out genetic structure breaks down and we're not nearly as capable as our our great 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 grandparents animals that were once vegetarian now rip each other apart An earth that was perfect now is disrupted with earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes, tornadoes, all sorts of natural evil. Because God's upholding power was withdrawn and why was it withdrawn because God gave Adam and us who fell in Adam a taste just a taste of what life would be like without him have you ever heard somebody say well life is hell and you you think you don't know the half of it brother Well, you know what? There is a smidgen of truth in that statement. Because God withdrew some of that upholding power, He's giving us a taste of what life is like in hell. Just a little dab, a little taste. it's sad we've been eric is uh, very caught up in uh, the civil war he loves to study the civil war particularly the battle of gettysburg and his favorite movie is the movie get gettysburg and uh, he's been watching that and there's a scene in there where where uh, the uh, union soldiers took some confederate prisoners of war and this, this union captain is interviewing the, the confederate soldiers and, and uh, they part one another and the confederate soldier says see you in, he- see you in hell uh, Billy Yank and uh, the uh, union soldier says see you in hell Johnny Reb what's sad is how that's made light of the seriousness of our rebellion against God and the consequences of that rebellion are made light of. But this world, which is broken, is giving us a little bit of what life is like without God we're suffering because we have that same sinful nature as Adam we're suffering because we make this every time we sin we choose to do what Adam did we in effect say Adam I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with you give me a bite And we suffer the same way He did. Whose responsibility is this mess? Is it God's? No, He made a perfect world. But He gave us the opportunity, the ability to choose. We chose a life without Him. And now we're suffering the consequences of it. Where is the God of love? The God of love says, when you deserve death, I step in, I withhold my immediate judgment, and I step into space and time and take your sins upon myself and give you the opportunity to merely trust me to save you. I allow you to taste what it's like without me, but offer you the means to live with me. This question comes from a lack of understanding of of the nature of God. It comes from a misunderstanding of whose responsibility The decision was anyway. Thirdly, it comes from a misunderstanding of God's purpose. If God could stop it, then why doesn't he? If God can stop the evil, why doesn't he? Well, stop and think about that for a minute. Will God stop the evil sometime? Amen. When? when he when he judges, when he brings to a final end those in rebellion against him. He gives us again a little taste of that at the second coming of Christ. Turn with me to Second Peter chapter three. This is set in a context, 2 Peter chapter 3, starting. we're going to start reading in verse 9, but this is a set in a context of Peter quoting unbelievers about the, the apparent delay of the Lord Jesus' return. In fact, why don't we skip back to verse 3. First of all, you must understand that it is That in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By, the, by the, these waters also, the world that of that time was deluged and destroyed. People willfully reject the idea of a literal creation and a literal flood, choosing rather to believe in the doctrine of uniformitarianism, that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And again, we're not going to follow that rabbit, rabbit trail. But look what Peter says. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friend, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Do not think that God is, that is saying that one, uh, one day with God is as a thousand years passing on earth because the second half of the phrase reverses that. All that phrase is saying is God is not controlled by time. He is outside of time, though he can work within time. Let's continue reading. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anything. Anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the important phrase. Why is God not immediately coming to stop the evil? Because when he does stop the evil, he must destroy the sinners. He's giving everybody the opportunity to repent. Why doesn't he stop it? Because a lot of people are going to die when he does, a lot of people are going to be in hell when he does. Certainly this is not something that you would say to someone grieving. But an answer to the old question is why do bad things happen to good people? Well, from God's perspective, there is no such thing as good people. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. When the rich young ruler came to the Lord Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? What did the Lord Jesus say to him? Why callest thou me good? There is one good. But God. And since you obviously don't see me as God. Why do you call me good? God graciously withholds His justice, which would be immediate condemnation in hell, and allow us to taste a little bit of what life without Him is like in order to give us opportunity and even desire to be saved. Some people ask the question, why did he or why did she die? Why did they have to die? That's really the wrong question. Why are we all going to die? Is the right question. And the answer is, because we're all sinners. Every single one of us. Turn with me again to Luke chapter 13. Again, this is uh, reflecting some of the self-righteousness that we all have. Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, there were some persons at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, notice how he makes it very personal, unless you repent, you will will likewise perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Sometimes... we get this haughty feeling that i'm superior to somebody down the, some somebody else somebody who's suffering i'm i must god is god is shining on me god is blessing me therefore i'm more holy than that person over there and a lot of that happened if you remember how many christians were being very haughty towards those in new orleans after the hurricane, thinking, well, that was a wicked city. That city got what it deserved. Well, just because they got what they deserved doesn't mean that we shouldn't deserve it as well. Let's not look down at other people. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we should be more cognizant of our sin and our sin nature than the average person around us. We should be very sensitive to that point. If we're walking with the Lord, we can't help but be smitten with the knowledge of our sin. Again, from the illustration. From sitting back there, you probably think this shirt is very, very clean. You probably missed the stain underneath the tie. If we were to get under the, under the light real close, we could see some of the dirt. And if you get under the microscope and look in there, it really looks horrible. The closer we get to the light, the more our dirt will show up. The closer we walk with the Lord, the more the contrast between His holiness, His goodness, and His love will be apparent compared to our sinful nature. If we're thinking we're superior to somebody else, Jesus has a word for you. Repent. God's purpose is to bring about the salvation that we all need. Praise the Lord for every single person in this room who has been graced by God to enjoy that salvation. But remember, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We have it because God is gracious. Period. The question, you know, why is there evil? comes from a lack of understanding of or misunderstanding of the nature of God it comes from a misunderstanding of whose responsibility this mess is it comes from a misunderstanding of God's purpose and it comes from a misunderstanding of a much bigger picture the first big picture the old philosophical question why? Why did God do it anyway? Why did God, who was perfectly adjusted to His circumstances, the, the Trinity was in perfect harmony with one another? Why did God choose to create? Why did he even allow sin? Well, here's a suggestion. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. I like the King James. Behold the goodness and severity of God. What is Paul telling us? Look at it. Consider both of these opposite extremes. Think about the broad spectrum of all that God is. Very soon you'll boggle your mind. But Just as a suggestion, why did God do all this? God wanted to reveal every aspect of His nature to creatures who could understand what He is and who He is and freely love Him. For it. Intellect, will, and emotions all wrapped up. Which we have. God wanted to do that. God wanted to reveal His justice. God wanted to reveal His grace, His mercy, His love, His wrath. The whole broad spectrum of who He is to us. It's going to take us all eternity to learn everything there is to know about God. Stop to think about that for a while and your mind will soon go <laughs> tilt in order to show God's wrath. God allowed the evil to happen he's not responsible for it he allowed it second big picture god has perfectly good reasons why he allows things to occur reasons that we may not see have you ever had this experience where you go through a severe trial and you make it through And after time and reflection, you say, you know, that was no fun. But I profited by it. You know, we'll be able to say that about every aspect of our life in eternity. That was... My view of, of eternity is we'll be able to remember this life like a bad dream. But think God led me all the way kind of like the poem the footprints in the sand God worked his perfect will out and it was perfect it was perfect for me think about job he lost his family he lost his home He lost his possessions. He lost his wealth. He lost the support of his wife and the respect of his friends. When Job thought to question God about why, God spoke to him in chapters 38 through 41 and examined him concerning what he knew, and God proved to Job that he really didn't know anything. Job's response was, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. But what was the latter end of Job? He grew by it. He knew God knew everything. God was right. One thing that I always think about when I read that book It says that Job was a righteous man, which he was. But notice the last word. He was righteous, but he was a man. And as a result, he was a sinner that needed to learn something. What was it that he needed to learn? No matter what, God's right. No matter what happens, God is absolutely right and just. God often uses trials to turn us to Him. To get us to focus on Him. The greatest blessing that God can give to this country is revival. But if it takes some trials to wake us up to our need for repentance, then the greatest blessing that God can give is whatever will cause us to repent and to seek His face. Here we have a nation that was founded on... Biblical principles whose original leaders were very godly men which we've rejected and again I I keep going back to the Civil War has anybody ever read President Lincoln's second inaugural address that is one of the most profound theological treatises on how God deals with sinful people. Because Lincoln deals with here is the Confederate States, here's the Union, they worship the same God, they, they believe the same Bible, they, they had the same basic history, Why did God have these two groups fight this horrible war? Basically, he says, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Any state that can look at a man and by the color of his skin say he's less than a man deserves the wrath of God this Dred Dred Scott decision, but I digress. The point is, God brought the civil war on this nation as a judgment against her rejection of biblical principles. Instead of Dred Scott, now we have Roe versus Wade. We have prayer and Bible reading out of public life. We have to take the Ten Commandments off of our buildings and off of public display. And we could go on and on and on. We're rejecting God. What's the greatest blessing that we can possibly get? A revival what will it take? Turmoil? We just very well may get it. But if it results in people getting saved, if it results in people getting right with God, what greater blessing could there be? The third big picture well, let me back up and just finish off second Chronicles 7:14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. if who the unsaved if my people which are called by my name that's you and me but the third big picture is eternity turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4:17 We'll start at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Notice verse 17. For our light affliction, and I'm going to break into the King James, I know. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Yeah, we endure a long period of difficulty and hardship. But what does that compare to eternity? That bad dream that we suffered some time ago. Our light affliction which is but for a moment works for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abound in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Continue to work continue to strive, continue to endure whatever the Lord brings our way. I just read an article this past week about a brother in the Lord who was diagnosed with throat cancer. It eventually took him. But all through it, he did not say, Why, Lord? His question was always, what's next, Lord? What can I do now that I have been diagnosed with cancer? What can I do now that the chemotherapy is no longer working? What can I do to serve you with the conditions you have allowed in my life? That is abounding in the work of the Lord. Lessons for our lives. How do I respond? Number one, recognize who God really is. Whose responsibility this mess is anyway? What God is doing? And then focus on the big picture. Hey, God is just. God will bring on us the fruit of our lives. What we try to teach our kids every action that we have has consequences. God's going to do that to us as well. He might pat us on the head, He might pat us on the rear. Whose responsibility is it? Who sinned in Adam? Me. I'm at fault. I'm the one, and I stand shoulder to shoulder with Adam and partake of the fruit every time I sin. And say, Lord, I don't want you, Lord. Therefore, the earth is suffering. Think about what God is doing. What he is bringing about. He's bringing about out of that slimy mess, despising even the the hand that is soiled by the filth. He is bringing out of that slimy mess, you and I, for his honor and glory. and he has a much bigger picture in mind than any of us can even dream. And even if those suggestions that I had are true, which I believe them to be, God has far more than I can even imagine. Secondly, how do I respond? When faced with somebody that's really grieving, really struggling, (laughs) they're not interested in this sort of discourse. Just be there for them. Comfort them. Support them. If they have material needs, take care of it if you have the ability to do so. And assure them that God is real and is there to receive them and comfort them. If somebody is truly suffering, be there for them. Number three, when faced with someone merely argumentative, then find out their basic ideas and show them God does exist and He is in control. And finally, perhaps you're here today and have never come to the point where you can say with certainty, God has saved me. I know that when I die, He will take me to be with Himself for all eternity. If you can't with 100% assurance say that, and that concerns you, please, See me, see one of the elders before you leave today.